So this evening we are going to uh, we're going to have to forego the paranormal contest because I couldn't uh, seem to find the last answer to the contest that we had. But I do know we had a winner, so we're going to have to postpone that for this week. This has been a very um, odd time for me and my dad. We just got back from uh, Europe last night, approximately oh, almost 24 hours ago, and I've, I'm running out about two hours sleep. But you don't want to hear about me. So let's talk about our guest. We we have uh, Bill Burns on with us this evening, and he's a man that needs a little introduction. But for those of you who don't know, he is well known in the TV in the TV world and the UFO world because he's the publisher of the UFO magazine. He's a TV producer for such shows as uh, UFO Hunters and Ancient Aliens, and he's also a great friend of ours. So, Bill, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, your mic's kind of breaking up a little bit. It is? Okay, how's this? Uh, oh, that sounds much better. For having, thank you for having me. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the invitation. Oh, no problem. No problem. I, there's, always, there's always those things that we've never had a chance to talk about. And I figure, well, since my dad is off uh, doing his other side, one of, wearing one of his many hats, and in this era, well, in this point in time, it happens to be his uh, press hat, he can't be with us, so I figured, hey, you know what? Why not? So Good, go for it. All right, so let's uh, get right down to brass tacks here. So you ha- you have a show that you produced, uh, Ancient Aliens. So you believe? Oh well, not you. Well, obviously you. You and a lot of other people believe that we've been influenced in our past because it it, act- it kind of there's no other reason why we one day we went from cave dwellers to say, um, agrarian societies and then being lawyers and doctors the next. It just doesn't make much sense. So, how do you feel about aliens or whatever influencing our society in the past? Well, I mean, one thing is pretty clear, and this is um, when you talk to engineers, when you talk to um, construction people who've inspected some of the megalithic monuments that we see, um, in Machu Picchu, the Nazca Lines, places like that, one of the comments they always make is it would take power tools of such enormous intensity, um, cutting tools and, 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 and drills and things like that, to have fit these stones together so securely. I mean, to have made square edges and, and, and things like that. And these monuments don't evidence the kinds of hand tools. That's the weird part about it. You don't see the hand tools. You don't see the hand tool markings. So their feeling is, and I agree with them, that somehow somebody has to use some very advanced technology. So even if somehow the aliens or, or somehow these ancient indigenous peoples had power tools, where would they plug them in? Right? I mean, where's, oh, yeah, exactly. the, where's, you know, like, where's the 120 line in the NAFTA line? I mean, it's, it's just not there. So obviously somebody delivered power, somebody delivered tools, somebody moved these things. So just the monuments themselves and the nature of how these things were assembled, and they were assembled six, seven, and 8,000 years ago, um, Seek some alternative source of power and energy for that to work. So that's that's how I begin, you know, and say, fine, show me how they built these things. Explain where the power tools came from. Explain how they lifted these stones 
up the sheer face of cliffs. I mean, if you could explain that, fine. I, 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 I'd love to hear an, a, a conventional explanation for this, okay? Oh, so yeah. That's one. Right? Then the other is, what are these strange symbols of helicopters, of, um, helicopters, Planes. and um, space, uh, uh, people in space suits and airplanes and doing in the hieroglyphs? How do these individuals who were painting and in some cases chiseling these hieroglyphs, how do they know what a helicopter looked like? I mean, it, it, just, it, it just boggles the mind. It makes absolutely no sense. So my point is, come up with a conventional explanation for this, and I'm more than happy to indulge in it. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember I watched, um, actually, I think it was Ancient Aliens that I was watching, and um, someone made the example of, um, I think it was the mono, the monolith of King Ramses II and how it had like his laws written out. And they tried to replicate it uh, with hand, and they couldn't do it because the marks were just so precise that a machine had to do it to be able to precisely repl- replicate it. And it just doesn't seem to make much sense. But that sort of leads into the next thing. Do you... After this this research that was just done on the human genes and it found all these missing genes that we thought were useless, but now they have some sort of use, do you think that perhaps we've been engineered? Well, let's say that 100,000 years ago, um, human beings are the only um, mammals whose brains are completely asymmetrical. And by an asymmetrical brain, what I mean is that the two hemispheres of the human brain have different functions, different functionality. Um, one hemisphere um, controls which side. Each hemisphere controls the opposite side of the body, and then there's a dominant hemisphere and there is a subordinate hemisphere. Well, the dominant hemisphere in a right-handed person is the left hemisphere of the brain, and that, of course, controls handedness, dexterity, things like that. Whereas in a truly left-handed person, not the guy in the king's speech, in a truly left-handed person, then the brain is reversed. But it's more than just handedness. It's uh, this asymmetric nature of the brain allows human beings to speak because the language center, and the language center is hardwired. This is not this is not a situation where um, oh language. The idea of having a language is learned. Language itself, the capacity for human language is is hardwired, right? So that you take the same baby, same infant, and if that infant is grows up in a Chinese household with parents who speak Chinese, he'll speak Chinese. The exact same infant, let him grow up in Paris, let her grow up in Paris, she'll wind up speaking French. The point that I'm trying to make is that the capacity for language is inborn, and the capacity for language resides, actually resides, in a specific part of the brain for a right-handed person on the left hemisphere. So how do the two hemispheres talk to each other? How How do messages from the dominant part of the brain get to the subordinate part of the brain? Well... That happens through a bundle, a very thick bundle of neurons called the corpus callosum. And the thing about the corpus callosum that's so fascinating is that 
if the corpus callosum for one reason is severed, severed chemically, so it's anesthetized and the messages are passing back and forth, interfered with with electrodes, so the um, electromagnetism of the brain doesn't work between the two hemispheres, or physically um, sectioned, uh, and there have been operations that have um, severed the corpus callosum, then the two parts of the brain operate completely independently. So the left hand will do something that the brain can't control. The right hand's going to have to control it. Something. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. Um, 100,000 years ago began the process of coming up with basically a bicameral brain where one side was dominant and the other side was subordinate. And that very uh, biological, that, that, uh, that physiological change in the human brain anatomy meant that human beings could develop the use of tools, develop handedness, right, saving right hand or left hand, develop language, but beyond language, developed what um, uh, a linguist called predicative thought, which means one thought is held in place by another. And predicative thought is so fascinating, it is analogous to the use of tools. One hand holds the tool and works the tool in, in predicative thought. One part of the brain, one part of um, the brain controls the other part, like a tool going into someone's hand. So all this started happening 100,000 years ago. And the question is, what started it? Didn't happen with chimpanzees, didn't happen with gorillas, didn't happen with orangutans, only happened with human beings. So one theory, one ancient alien UFO theory, is very simple. That was what was manipulated. If there were, assuming for argument's sake, there were aliens that visited planet Earth maybe a million years ago, maybe 500,000 years ago, whenever they visited Earth, when they wanted to manipulate a species of hominid and create a species that would gradually evolve into a species they could control. I mean, these people are not deities, they're not gods, but they are, are, are just other creatures, probably a lot like us, very much like us, and, and what they were able to do was manipulate the human genome such that over the course of X number of generations, thousands of years, human beings then evolved into creatures with this um, asymmetric brain, which they knew, because of their own evolution, I'm sure, which they knew would eventually allow us to create language. And from language, you get a social structure. From language, you get logic. You get family, clan, territory, state, nation, state. You develop hierarchy because language is hierarchical. If you examine the nature of language, it's all hierarchical. So that's what was created in the human species. Now, did that was that created on its own, or was that created through some form of intelligent design? And intelligent design doesn't mean that um, we are creationists. Intelligent design means there was some kind of intelligent overseer behind the, the, uh, the development of the human species. And so it could well be that there were ancient alien cultures that visited planet Earth 
and uh, they needed workers. They needed somebody to mine gold because gold is such a great conductor. And um, they found a, 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 a very compliant hominid species, and literally they began to um, manipulate that species genetically until they were able to get the thing to our species to evolve on its own. So I think that's, that's a plausible explanation if you don't discount the fact that there were ancient space travelers millions of years ago. Well, it's really interesting that you bring that up because um, in a lot of the like the most ancient uh, texts, like uh, let's say uh, the Bible or something like that, if you read it in ancient Hebrew, my dad brings this point up all the time, and it's fascinating how it seems like the well, there's also the tale of Gilgamesh as well, and all that stuff, like by the ancient Sumerians and things like that. But it, it sounds like they that they were literally were people that came down from the sky, took saliva and tissue samples and things like that, and messed with it. Sounds like with their genes and stuff. But the thing that makes it more interesting is that they used it for slave labor. And now that they're done, if they are, if this did happen and they're done, then what do we do? But that's why I don't. Well, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. But um, oh, I lost my train of thought. No, <laughs> uh, no. Let's see. I I was going on about. No, well, you were saying that they were using. They developed the human species for slave labor. Now they've left, or now we've evolved. Now what happened? Oh yes, now I remember. Yeah. So it seems as if if you take away the si- the shiny glitz of the cities and things like that, we're still really a hunter gatherer society. And we really haven't evolved that much, if you really think about it. If anything, we may be devolving from the way everything's going nowadays. So how do you well, how do you feel um, about that? Well, uh, um, I have a different theory. Um, on, on the one hand, I'm wondering if by feeding the human race, what your father says about the Nephilim, those that fell down from the heavens. And uh, if you read Genesis, one of the first things you read after the story of Cain and Abel, what you then read is um, how the children of Adam and Eve mated with the children of the Nephilim. So almost immediately, almost immediately, three events take place, okay? The three events are, well, actually four. One is, the creation of human beings, right? Mm-hmm. By an otherworldly force. Call that otherworldly force whatever you want to. Obviously, you know, uh, the, uh, the Bible says that the otherworldly forces are creator. It's the Lord, okay? So um, an otherworldly force, a divine force, omnipotent force, an almighty force created human beings. Okay? Almighty with respect to human beings. Mm-hmm. Then the next event, the very next event that happened, is that there is another strange creature that this new human race encounters. That other strange creature is a reptile. But it's a reptile that's a sentient reptile, a reptile that can have a conversation, a reptile that can seduce and, 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 and wean away um, the human, the created human, from its creator. And that's obviously the serpent in the garden, Okay. And But it's clearly a serpent that is not crawling on its belly because the punishment that the one otherworldly entity 
imposes on the otherworldly entity in the garden is, you shall crawl on your belly and mankind shall crush you with a teal. That's the punishment, right? Mm-hmm. So and there'll be enmity between you and the human being. So immediately, you know, I can look down at my brook where I'm sitting at, and if I see a snake, I hate the snake. So, I mean, immediately that's, so that is somehow lodged into our, into our um, collective unconscious that we hate snakes. So that's the first, that's the second otherworldly encounter, mm-hmm. right? The first otherworldly encounter creates human beings. The second is the serpent. The third otherworldly encounter is the presence of the Nephilim, those who fell from the heavens, yet another non-human entity. And then the fourth encounter is that they intermarry, they, 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 um, they interbreed, so there's hybridization of the culture. Mm-hmm. So those four things happen literally within the first uh, few books of, of Genesis. Then you come to the book of Noah, where the Creator literally repents of his creation, right? Oh, human beings are impure. So the Creator chooses the one pure human being, Noah, right? Because theoretically Noah has no Nephilim blood in him. Mm -hmm. And it's Noah who will be the restart of the human race. Everything else will be wiped out in the flood, and we know the flood is a real historical event because it turns up in other cultures. And then Noah restarts the human race, and the Creator is so saddened by what he's done, looking at the remains of life on planet Earth, that the Creator actually enters into a covenant with Noah, and the bow is the symbol of that covenant. So it's fascinating how if you look at Genesis, if you look at Genesis from the point of view, from the perspective of otherworldly beings and otherworldly encounters, mm-hmm. what you literally have is almost a textbook, depending upon the prism you're using, a textbook for ancient aliens. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can, to- I can totally see that. There's a lot of interesting things that you see, and not even just in the Bible. Like, if you look at the Mahabharata and things like that, like... There are so many interesting examples, but you mentioned something. You mentioned um, reptilians, and uh, as you know, my dad and I recently just got back from the UK, and we visited Rendlesham Forest with uh, Larry Warren and a bunch of other people who lived around in the area, and it was really, really a very odd place. Have you ever been there? I've, we filmed there. That was, oh, yeah, um, that's right. I think, episode five or six and the first season of UFO Hunter. Sure, we've been there. Oh yeah, it's it's a really weird place. But we were with these two women, and um, one of them's one of them her name's Brenda, and they call her Brendelsham because she's just so fascinated with the place. She has like tons of pictures and things like that. And I was looking at some of them, and she had like pictures of reptilians, different types of craft, even something that they call the octopus man that they saw in a field. And so I I was gonna ask you like I, I was I was thinking of this because I'm jumping ahead to today today of course. Do you think that we're still being influenced today. I mean, I tend to think that the whole Rendlesham thing was some sort of big experiment, but that's that's just me thinking that. So do you think we're still part of this big whole being influenced by outside forces? Well, I, I think one of the elements to um, a lot of the UFO encounters in modern ufology that we're seeing is that because these encounters tend to take place 
I mean, the encounters, there really is an interaction between the military. Um, they tend to take place um, with, with, in the context of nuclear sites. Rendlesham was, even though Chuck Holt couldn't say this because he's still under uh, restrictions from the National Security Act, Rendlesham was a nuclear storage base. There were nuclear weapons at Rendlesham. And one of the things that Colonel Holt said was that the sentry in the guard tower, People tend to think, oh, the United States Air Force personnel, they're a bunch of nuts. They were just running around crazy in, at the forest. It was right after Christmas. Who knows what they were drinking. These guys don't know anything. They mistook the Orford light for, for a spaceship. How, how dumb are they? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, the sentry in the guard tower, and this is the guard tower because we were up there. You know, uh, we actually saw it. The, the range of view, that sentry could see the entire base. And the fascinating thing about it was that sentry, who to this day will not go public, has said not only did he see lights in the sky, and he saw the Air Force security detail in the forest, in Rendlesham Forest, but he actually saw a, um, what he said was a light that was shining a beam down directly on the nuclear storage bunker. So it was scanning the nuclear weapons. Now, we don't know, because nobody's ever told us, whether it deactivated the nuclear facilities, whether it, 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 it very quickly half-life the uranium so these things wouldn't explode. Maybe it was assessing the nuclear capability, the firepower of these weapons. Maybe it was simply counting the weapons. We don't know. All we know from the sentry, and we just have the sentry's word for it, is that there was something, a light, hovering over the nuclear storage facilities, scanning them, or at least playing some kind of a beam on these things. And you don't know what that beam is. So, I mean, you compare that to the 1945 events over the Hanford Nuclear Facility in Washington, where people claim there was a strange object covering over that, over Oak Ridge in Tennessee, over Roswell Air Force Base in 1947, because that's what happened. I mean, before the actual crash at Roswell, <clears throat> the folks who were the Army personnel who worked on who worked on the craft, who were truck drivers, who were the sergeants running the base, they saw at least two crafts over the runway. So even then, before the actual crash, there were crafts days before over the runway. The point is that for ever since 1945, and especially with Foo Fighters as well, ever since 1945, these crafts have tended to turn up around nuclear facilities. 1965, Malmsten Air Force Base uh, in Montana, um, in the 1980s, the Soviet um, underground nuclear facility. Um, there, that was another one. They've surveilled our submarines. They were surveilling in 1952 Operation Mainbrace, a NATO exercise that had nuclear weapons. So if you take all of that in context, uh, my suggestion would be that, um, yeah, maybe they are surveilling and are prepared to intervene in the case of 
a kind of a nuclear exchange that would literally wipe out life on the planet. It's to their interest that planet Earth not be destroyed, not be poisoned by radiation. And, and I think in part that's what's going on. Yeah, well, I, I suppose that makes sense. I mean, that's one of the best. That's one of the best theories I've heard so far. But I, I wanted to get into a little bit of exopolitics here. So you tend to believe that uh, not all aliens are or UFOs or whatever are friendly, because mostly most people that we talk to that talk about exopolitics, they're usually like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna say we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that," and it's like all happy and stuff. And it's like, well, what if they don't want to talk, or what if they don't want to do this? And they, it doesn't really occur to them that these things could be hostile. Right. I mean, I I if you consider the possibility that there are many different alien species and that <clears throat> some of them could care less about human beings, some of them are benevolent because we are their creation, and some of them <clears throat> um, would love it if human beings simply disappeared from the planet and just left it alone, um, and some of them might not even be life forms as we understand life forms. I mean, I keep, I keep thinking of... Um, one invasion that took place, I mean, this is my pet theory, is that one of the invasions that took place, one of the extraterrestrial invasions, was an invasion, I like to call it a silicon invasion, that this craft literally um, seeded humanity with the very minute piece, but an important piece of technology it needed to start evolving um, silicon-based life forms, i.e. computers, uh, with the expectation that at some point in the history of the human race, in the history of technology, and it's really only been, what, 70 years, in the history of uh, human technology, we would become so reliant, and we ourselves would evolve computers to the point where we are relying on them for basic functions of our society. Oh, yeah. And as we evolve computers more and more, you know, and, and I'm sure that you have heard in your experience, you want to do something, and somebody on the other end of the phone says, oh, the computer won't let me do that. The computer won't allow me to do that. Yep. You've seen that. We've all, I've all heard that. What do you mean the computer won't allow you to do that? What did the computer say, you know, is telling you you're wrong? <laughs> so, so here's a computer that because of its place, in the bureaucracy of whatever entity that it's functioning in, it, its place is that it will not allow a human being to do something to make a human decision with respect to um, a choice. And it's the computer that makes the choice for you. Now, what, and now we know that where we're going in evolutionary computing, let's just take battlefield drones, for example. Oh, yeah. You're going to have drones that... Um, don't just fire on command from some remote base in the middle of um, Kansas or something. You're going to have drones that actually make the decision to fire based on based on a knowledge base, based on a set of um, shoot-no-shoot algorithms, based on what they can identify through their sensors visually. They're going to make that decision, okay? And Ray Kurzweil, the futurist, has written that at some point, because... The whole functionality of modern computer-based society is communication. That if computers 
are able to communicate with themselves, by themselves, and evolve themselves, you're going to have computers coming to decisions on their own. So does that mean that um, our technological society has to impose on the computers that we create these kind of Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics? You know, no oh, robot yeah. can harm a human being. No robot can allow a human being to be harmed. And no robot through its inactivity can cause... I mean, you know, you can see the parameters of, of those three. And um, is, is that what we have to do? Do we have to program morals into our computers? What will happen at some point if um, drones make their own fire, no fire decisions, if computers come to decisions about what is um, polluting planet Earth, basically it's us, um, what, what's creating all the problems? It's, it's human beings. So what's the one way to do this? Well, you gradually, very gradually, uh, you find ways to eliminate the human beings. Are we going to have a big Armageddon? Are we going to destroy the planet? No, it's probably going to be through plague, through evolving diseases, various forms of avian flu, various forms of swine flu, various forms of plague, various forms of the Marburg virus, the Ebola virus, um, rest HIV, things like that. I mean, we're seeing this now as viruses almost magically are evolving to generate their own immunity to the antibiotics that we're using. I mean, right now, one of the major problems in the hospitals are, are super viruses that can withstand all, I mean, all kinds of antibiotics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Doctors now are reluctant to prescribe antibiotics, uh, except in the most extreme cases, and the reason is not just that people are intolerant of them, but... What they, but what people do is the symptoms disappear, they stop taking the antibiotic, and, and then reappear, the yeah. remaining bacteria develop. It's like you're giving them a, 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 a flu shot. They develop their own immunity, and then the antibiotic doesn't work. So, I mean, are there other life forms at work, we know there are, that basically are a threat to human beings? And the answer is, of course there are threats to human beings. So it would be so easy to eliminate human beings off planet Earth through a plague, through a virus, things like that, through weather control. I mean, we're in the midst of um, weather that is very strange. Uh, the ice pack has, has, um, is the lowest it's ever been. Now it's growing again because the Arctic summer has passed, but um, it's growing again. But the point is it was the lowest it's ever been. The, the ocean levels are rising. Temperatures are getting warmer. We just went through one of the hottest summers on record. Tornado Alley is worse this year than it's been in the past. I mean, we could go on and on. The way to do this is not to have this phenomenal nuclear war that suddenly wipes everybody out. But that's the one thing, if I were an extraterrestrial, if I were an alien, the one thing I wouldn't want is a big nuclear war, wreck the whole planet for everybody. No, what I would want is um, to wipe out most of the human race through natural causes, and then you control the human race that remains. Oh, yeah, that makes or a lot of sense. you work a deal with a certain kind of elite, the Carlisle group, the Bilderbergers, the Illuminati, the Dick Cheney's of the world, the Mitt Romney's of the world. You work some kind of a deal with that elite, and you say, look, you know, you help us out, we'll help you out. Um, here's the deal. Uh, we need that 47%. We need that 99% to disappear or to be completely subservient. So you know what? Um, 
what can you do politically to eliminate these people? And and you're seeing it now. Let's get rid of health care. I'm not saying this is like the Republicans are in league with the aliens. What I'm saying is <laughs> that if I were if I were an extraterrestrial culture that wanted a nice compliant human race, so I could really be on the planet and you know harvest the planet and get rid of all these other people, then what I'd want to do is work with one group, a society. Uh, let's just say it's the one percent. And I would get that one percent to do whatever was necessary to get rid of the rest of human beings. You know, you start with um, continents where you want to use all the minerals. You start with Africa, right? You work yeah. with Asia, and you basically find a way to do it. You don't have to do it overnight because human beings took hundreds of thousands of years to evolve from the pre-hominid state. Yeah. So you're not going to do it overnight, but you're going to do it really gradually. And, and, and that's what I would do. So do I think they're still here? Yes. Do I think they have an agenda? Yes. And I think we are following that agenda probably against our own will. Bill? Yes. Oh, all right. Uh, sorry, you cut out for a second. <laughs> I did all. Okay. Oh, no, it's okay. No, I think, no, no. My, my attitude is I think we're following that agenda. Uh, probably against our own will. Oh, yeah, that makes tons of sense. Well, on that pleasant note, we're going to take a break. <laughs> so we'll see. Okay. We'll be uh, right back with uh, Behind the Paranormal with just Ben, you know, this evening. So stay with us. Hi, I'm Greg Bell, the host of Win Radio Was. I'm Mortimer. Bill. Is that you under that blindfold? Bill. With this thing on, I can't see who I am. No, I imagine not. <laughs> can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? On a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. Yeah. Win Radio Was. Shows from the past for today's imaginations. Win Radio Was airs Monday through Friday right here on ON 1240 Radio at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. So welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. And I'd like to give a little uh, shout-out to uh, Amazon Kindle right about now. So they are selling the tremendous Kindle Fire right about now, and you can get tons of apps and free things. You can get tons of apps and things on there. You can get tons of books. You can get movies and all that. And it's at a pretty low price at this point in time. And, hey, Christmas is coming. You should start your Christmas shopping early. And don't forget, you can also sign up for other things on Amazon. They'll give you discounts on that and... Hey, it's a pretty good deal, and there's all sorts of books, including my dad's books. So if you decide to get one, it's a perfect gift for a loved one, friend, family member, whatever. It's a gift for anyone. Oh, so right, so we're back. Well, well, we've been here at Behind the Paranormal on WON 1240 AM radio. So, Bill, you pretty much just answered one of uh, my next questions, because I was going to ask, do you think that... um. Uh, if that they could be interested in our politics and internet international relations and conspiracies and things like that, and maybe certain individuals are working with them, but you already sort of answered that. So, do you think? Well, I mean, yeah. Oh, so oh, continue. Go for it. No, go ahead, please. No, go go ahead and finish the question. Oh, all right. So, do you think we're being steered towards something bigger? Yes, I do. I I, I think that on the one hand, um, look at the history of the past. 70 years ever since Roswell and, and, and ever since the end of World War II. Um, what you're looking at are countries who are hostile countries, hostile, with nuclear weapons, and we've never had a nuclear war. We just have not had a nuclear war. And the Russians, the, uh, the Soviets, uh, manifested their intent to... Um, 
impose communism on us. Mm-hmm. We manifested our intent to destroy them. Um, back and forth, you know, the, uh, the Chinese. When you look at all the countries with nuclear weapons and you realize that we've never, ever, after the events that after we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we never again launched a nuclear weapon. Now, you could say because we're a sane species, because uh, it was not our intent to destroy, etc., etc., or you could say, you know what, um, somehow at some point in the history of our in the history of our development, those in power, let's just say Eisenhower, at his meeting with the extraterrestrials at uh, Muroc at Edward Air Force Base, or, or at um, or at, uh, or in New Mexico, uh, basically came to an understanding with the extraterrestrials that they would prevent us from self-destruction. They will keep us from destroying ourselves and give us certain kinds of technology. And in exchange for that, in exchange for our being allowed to evolve on this planet without destroying ourselves, because that was our potential, mm-hmm. basically they can take whatever resources they need. They can uh, 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 recombine their DNA with our DNA, if that's what they want to do. And they will not disclose their presence, and we will not disclose their presence. And that's the kind of a deal that might have worked out, kind of an open skies agreement. And my take is that Eisenhower, who was a very wise man, Eisenhower essentially took that open skies agreement and said, okay, if we can do this with the extraterrestrials, then we could do this between the between the Soviets and, and the uh, and uh, NATO, and so we structured an open skies agreement. Eisenhower structured an open skies agreement with the Soviets, and basically um, that really kept us from blowing one another up over the course of um, over the course of sixty years. So, so I think that there were positive benefits from that. I think we might have been on a collision course. I mean, think of all the nut cases we've had. That if, I mean, when the Cuban Missile Crisis popped up, then I think, who was it, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Curtis LeMay, I don't know whether he was Chairman of the Joint Chiefs or something like that in the Air Force. Yeah, but, I think he was. Yeah, Curtis LeMay, who basically ran, right, he was George Wallace's vice presidential candidate. Uh, Curtis LeMay said, no, 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 this is it. Let's just bomb the crap out of Cuba. Let's invade Cuba. This is our chance. We have the Soviets over a barrel. Oh, this is self-defense. Let's go in there and take out Castro. And when we take out Castro, um, uh, the Soviets will back off. We'll show them who's born. Kennedy didn't want to do that and didn't do that. And um, we could have been in a nuclear war just over the... I mean, I spoke to uh, George Merritt, who was one of the um, interceptor pilots. This was in the Edwards Air Force um, episode we did in season one, mm-hmm. we spoke to Sam Merritt, and he said, yeah, he said, you know, I was among the group, the squadrons, flying over northwestern United States with nuclear weapons, with nuclear missiles under my wingtips, and if we saw a Soviet squadron of bombers, and the Soviets had them, and they had a lot of bombs, and they would have overwhelmed us, our instructions were, 
fire every single missile we had over the, you know, at the Soviets, over the Bering Strait, wait till they cross the strait, and uh, go back to base, reload, and go back up again. And he said, but we knew just from the sheer numbers of Soviet bombers that some of them were going to get through. This was 1962, that some of them were going to get through. And we knew that um, cities where our families lived, like San Francisco, were going to be destroyed. Yeah. So there we were. At, I mean, we had in- nuclear-tipped interceptors in the air looking for Soviet bombers. That's how close it came. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen not because the Soviets punked out, not because Khrushchev was a coward. He wasn't. When you read the story of Khrushchev and Kennedy uh, in Vienna in, in, 1960, in, in 1962, when Khrushchev beat the crap out of Kennedy in that oh, meeting, yeah. telling him, right, he said, either you get the hell out of Berlin, we fix Berlin, or we're invading Berlin, we're going to close it down. And Kennedy was actually panic-stricken. He had no answer. Yep. So uh, he told Scotty Reston of the New York Times it was the worst day of his life. Khrushchev was brutal with this guy. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that for all of the things that happened, he never did go to nuclear war. Had a lot of small wars, had a lot of flare-ups, India, Pakistan, Israel, and, um, Egypt, and, and, and Jordan, and Syria. We, we had all these mighty wars, the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq, but never, never did anybody go nuclear. And there's a reason for that. And I think one of the reasons is that if we try to go nuclear, events such as what happened at Malmstrom Air Force Base, where the nukes were shut down, Events that happened in, 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 in the Soviet Union when a whole Russian nuclear facility was shut down. Uh, actually, the missiles armed. The launch codes were input. They were set to go. And the um, Moscow Center could not abort the launch. And, and the Soviet Union was about to launch ICBM. Multiple warhead ICBMs against the United States. And that would have been, um, that would have triggered a nuclear war for sure, at least a bilateral nuclear war. And that would have, and at the last minute, whatever was interfering with the Soviet control over its own missiles, it released it, and the Russians automatically aborted the launch. Now, when you consider events like this, you then have to realize there is some external force at work. And that's the position that I would take, that literally we have been, we have been um, told in no uncertain terms that you, your nuclear weapons will not work. We will not let them work. You could beat each other, to, you know, beat each other bloody with, with one instrument, but you will not have a nuke. And that's what I believe. Yeah, that, that actually makes... A lot of sense. And, you know, it's an old uh, military tactic to make something sound so crazy that nobody would ever believe it. And I remember, it, this is like going, I, I saw an episode of Futurama once. I was, I was, I couldn't sleep and I just had Adult Swim on. And um, they were making fun of, like, the military in the 40s. And it was like they had, they just captured, like, a UFO or something. And it was like, all right, scientists check, like, military uh, generals check and then it was like crazy conspiracy guy no one will ever believe check and uh, i just thought that was funny because it's it seems so crazy but yet it makes so much sense but then Perfect uh, sense. 
it makes it makes so much sense because it it doesn't make sense how we're making everybody get rid of nukes yet we still have them. It it just is I don't know. There's a lot of weird things going on and I've seen some pretty weird stuff in my day and I wouldn't put it past anything to say that that is a very valid theory in my opinion. But let's um well, we've got like a little little under 15 minutes left, but I I wanted to ask something really quick. So Back in the 40s, like right after World War II, and um, General Patton wanted to invade Russia because he was like, oh, well, they're weak. We should just go right in and destroy the Soviets. And then I think it was President Ike at the time said no. So I guess that sort of makes sense because you need two giant powers to balance each other out, and then that didn't really work because the Soviets decided to... No, no, I mean, the story's a little different. Um, First of all, the president at the time was Truman. Oh, it was Truman. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, here's what happened. Um, and this still resonates today. <clears throat> what happened after the um, Soviets invade, uh, the Red Army invaded Berlin, was that part of I think it's Patton's Third Army. Part of Patton's Third Army were in Berlin. Still, they were occupying Berlin when the Russians invaded, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened was the Russians took elements of Patton. This was not in the movie. This is what really happened. Uh, uh, the Soviet army took the American soldiers prisoner. They basically took whole um, elements of Patton's Third Army and they transported them back to Russia. They were like POWs. And Patton was so incensed at this that he wanted to invade Berlin, reinvade Berlin, invade the Soviet sector of Berlin, and engage the Russians. So... um, he knew the Russians were vulnerable. They just expended themselves on, on, on fighting the Nazis. We were strong. But that was the fight that Patton had with, uh, uh, with Beatle Smith and um, with Ike. And Truman had to sign off on the fact that American soldiers were taken as POWs by the Russians. And the question is, why would the Russians do that? Why would the Russians take Americans, which they also did in Korea, by the way, and also in Vietnam? Yeah. Why would the Russians do that? Why would they do that? What was in it for them? Well, here's what was in it for them. The Soviets had a plan, and the plan was to take the identity of these soldiers, take their identity, and assign their identity to Soviet spies, basically deeply programmed KGB agents. Oh, yeah. Sleeper and agents. they would be infiltrated back into the United States under those identities. And in time of war, they would be the agent provocateurs who would uh, bomb power plants, uh, you know, break up railroad crossings. It was literally a whole bunch of spies. Now, the CIA knew this. And this is now 1948, okay? So... Um, the CIA knew this. This is not a big secret. Yeah. We knew that the Russians had taken a lot of our soldiers. So the CIA knew this. So what did the CIA do? Knowing that there were going to be Russian subversives living in the United States with American identity that had programming, and the programming was so deep, they, uh, these were people who were conditioned to respond to certain triggers. Look at the story of Candy Jones. Oh, yeah. Along with John Neville. Okay, so these are people who respond to trial. I mean, she was one of our assets. But, so what did we do? Well, 
as early as the early, early, early 1950s, we began taking the records from the German concentration camps of the mental, the conditioning experiment, the torture experiment, and we began to develop um, theories about how to break through deep conditioning. And believe it or not, one of the ways we, did, we figured out how to do this was um, not just using drugs, not just using all kinds of, you know, conditioning techniques, but using electrical currents to stimulate certain portions of the brain. And in so doing, you literally would figure out where certain memories were stored. This is in, in like modern brain bio theory. This is like the rage right now. But this, this dates back 60 years. Wow. And and, um, and that's what we were doing, but we didn't do it in the United States. We did it in Canada. And in, what's so ironic is that two of the biggest books of the 19, late 70s, early 80s, maybe late 60s, early 70s, uh, they became movies, they became movements in psychoanalysis. The games people play, right, that song by Engel the Comforting, the games people play, yeah. and I'm okay, you're okay. Oh, yeah. They all developed from that early CIA finance research into stimulating memories in the brain, and that became known as uh, Mind Control Ultra, MK Ultra. Yeah, so, I, did a, I did a report on MK Ultra in high school. <laughs> Well, but that was the but, but the rationale for that was what you mentioned that patent elements of patents army were taken by the Soviets. We knew what they wanted to do with those identities. We knew they were going to be deeply conditioned. The Russians invented conditioning. I mean, look at Pavlov's dog. Yeah, Pavlov's dog. They invented this stuff. So, so given that, uh, the fascinating thing, of course, is that the Soviets invented it. The only way to break through some of that level of conditioning, deep conditioning, was to use electrical stimulation for various parts of the cerebral cortex to bring up certain memories. And that's what we were experimenting with. Oh, wow. Oh, well, wow. I didn't know Patton's troops getting captured caused all of that. They did, as did American pilots at the end of World War II. Oh, yeah. And remember, oh, I'm sorry, at the, at the end of the Korean War. And, of course, remember... How, um, remember how the, um, I'm trying to think of the actual incident, but, oh, well, it was a motion picture called 36 Hours starring James Garner, where, um, James Garner was captured by a Nazi agent in England, and they had set up a prison camp, which was supposed to look like an American hospital, and so that when James Garner came out of the sedatives, came out of the anesthesia, he awoke in an American hospital. And there was an American nurse, nobody spoke with American accents, and James Garner had no memory. And they con they were convincing James Garner that he had been, uh, they'd rescued him, and he'd been unconscious for weeks, uh, even during the whole Normandy invasion, and to stimulate his memory, to bring back, because he was an amnesiac, to bring back his memory, they asked him to lay out the battle plan for the invasion of Normandy, which he then began to do. Now, that's a, that, the premise of that script was taken from what the Russians and the Chinese were doing in, at the end of the Korean War. They'd set up POW camps that were made to American hospitals, and when the pilots came out of anesthesia, that's the Manchurian candidate. 
Oh, yeah. literally the story of the Manchurian Candidate, which was based on truth. Oh, yeah, the Manchurian That's actually one of my favorite movies. But no, it, it, make, it makes tons of sense. But that actually got way off the topic. <laughs> no, it's... um. So, well, we're... I was actually going to go into Nazis and stuff, but we don't really have that much time left. So, what's going on with you? What's What, what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm in a television series. I'm in actually two television series. It's called Unsealed the Alien Files and Unsealed the Conspiracy Files. And they're both in syndication. So, depending upon where you live, um, we are on one of the local channels in your area, here, here in the... Uh, here in, uh, in New York City, it's WPIX. Um, I'm not sure where it is in Boston, but in, it's WPIX in New York City. It's WPHL in Philadelphia. Uh, it's KTLA in Los Angeles. And um, you can catch us on, I think, Saturday nights, early Sunday morning, uh, set to DVR. And uh, there are the uh, it's Alien Files, which is about what was... Um, the whole issue of um, the Blue Planet Project and is it true, is it false, what oh, are you yeah. talking about? And the other are the alien conspiracy files. What is the agenda for um, controlling human beings on planet Earth? So that's what I'm up to right now, and I'm, I'm completing. I just finished a book, uh, which we published, um, finished two books. which was published in uh, 2013, actually three books that are coming out next year, one of which is um, it's the... Um, it's called UFO Hunters Book One, and it is the book tie-in to UFO Hunters Season One. The other book is um, not about UFOs. It's about um, the crisis in our military right now, how the, um, uh, why there are so many suicides in the military, what devastation the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan um, have caused for our troops. And then the third book is called, it's the last book in the um, three-book series called The Haunting of America, this next book coming out about a year from now. It's called um, The Haunting of 21st Century America. Oh, wow. That that sounds fascinating. So these are all coming out next year? All coming out next year. And we're turning in a novel uh, before Halloween um, written with George Nori. Uh, it's a time travel novel, and that's coming out next year. And so there's a lot of stuff happening. Oh, yeah. It definitely sounds like you're really busy. I mean, it takes my dad, like, my, my dad's book is, like, three years late now. He's not even, he's nowhere near done. <laughs> but that that's what you get for running your own hours and things like that and having other things on the side. So, uh, well, we don't really have enough time for another question, but, well, Bill, it was great having you on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh yeah, anytime. It's always always great to hear from you. You always have such interesting things to talk about and never run out of things to say. Okay, well, um, I hope that uh, when these books come out, I can come back on and talk about it. Oh, of course, yeah. I'll uh, write that down. So yeah, I, we will definitely have you back on for then, and we'll probably be in touch anyway. Okay, well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, so that was definitely a fascinating show. We still have a few minutes left, and I would go into some announcements. Oh, yeah, we can go into some announcements. So 
We just did our talk in Rendlesham, in, uh, Rendlesham, the Rendlesham area in Suffolk, England, and got back from that last night. And that was a really, really great. And I, and if anybody is uh, checking out the podcasts or listening live that we met there, just wanted to say thank you for being such a great audience. And it was really great. And it was nice getting to know all of you. You're all wonderful, wonderful people. So don't forget that we have uh, the, we're going to be at the uh, Psychic Fair in uh, Warwick. So check. Check the uh, website, www.behindtheparanormal.com, and you'll just check under uh, What's New. And you can see that we, we're we going to have a, our next scheduled talk then. And it's going to be in October sometime. I don't have the date in front of me, so I'll uh, we'll get back to you with that uh, on Sunday or next Monday, depending on what you listen to. So don't forget, you can always get four all our podcasts. They are all free on the show website, www.behindtheparanormal.com. Come, and we have about over we have over 400 podcasts, and we have lots of lots of fun shows and things like that, including this one, which I'm doing by myself. And usually, I'd have my dad here, and I'd probably make a snide remark or something. Well, snide, no, more of a tongue-in-cheek remark about how well I wasn't there for most of the early shows, but it doesn't really matter right now. So, uh, well, we still have like a uh, about a minute left. So I'm I'm gonna say a few other I'm gonna say a few other things about. How well it was just lovely having having uh, Bill Burns on. I we don't get enough chance to talk, and we I actually had a hard time trying to get a hold of him uh, because of many different problems and not having internet access for a very long time, and my emails messed up and things like that. But I hope everybody enjoyed the the show. I actually forgot to give out the call call in numbers, so, so I'm very sorry if anyone wanted to call in. And there's only about like 30 seconds left, so I can't really ask you to call in now. But I would like to say, if you, uh, say one one last thing before we close up here. Uh, the few I, I want to say that our our quote goes out to, or our quote of the day, so to speak, goes out to uh, Joe Ferrier, and he always would end the show by saying, "Watch the skies." And I I feel, or well, sometimes he would end his show that way. So I feel like it's appropriate to say, "Watch the skies," and thanks for staying with us, or well, me on this great cosmic journey. We'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.